Well, I wish I could say to you all this morning that I was inspired by a recent graduation sermon that I heard recently. Unfortunately, dismayed is a better descriptor. Dismayed because the speaker, after completing four years of college and two years of graduate school, decided that his best and his boldest advice to these graduates as they embark on life after graduation was to be happy. Be happy, he said again. Do whatever you have to do to be happy, he said. You deserve to be happy, he said. And then he explained this piece of sage advice. He said, because if you're happy, you'll treat other people better. And if you treat other people better, they'll be happy. And if they're happy, they'll treat other people better. And those other people will be happy. And before you know it, there'll just be happiness all over the place. And so with that, the graduates were propelled out into the world to doggedly pursue what makes them happy. But what if? What if the job they land doesn't make them happy? What if the salary they receive doesn't make them happy? What if the place they have to live in order to have that job doesn't make them happy? What if the things that they buy with the money that they make from that job they don't like doesn't make them happy? What if they can't find just the right set of friends in this new place that they've had to go for this new job? What if they don't make them happy? What if the spouse they catch or already have, doesn't make them happy. You see, I don't know about you, but it seems to me a very precarious proposition. And more than just a little bit disconcerting to make the future hope of the world contingent on personal happiness. And when you send people out in the world to find happiness, you're consigning them really to a life of chaos. Looking here, looking there, looking, looking everywhere for this elusive or at least difficult to find happiness. And how many times have you said this to someone, or maybe you're not brave enough to say it, but you've thought it? I don't think anything in this world is ever going to make you happy. Come on, you've said it. But not to worry because the graduates were at the very end advised by the speaker to ask the universe, she will guide you. (laughs) Anyway, my goal, honestly, is not to ridicule this graduation speaker. Absolutely not, though I felt that was kind of cathartic to get it off my chest. (laughs) But listen, hearing what he had to say made me realize what a great God you and I have. He has rescued us from such trivial and hollow pursuits. And I don't say that lightly, given the fact that our constitution says that we have the right to life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. You see, God has something so much better for all of us than happiness. Though it is true that there can be no greater happiness than that we find in Christ. He has something for us by which we can find true fulfillment and lasting change. He has for his people holiness, a life set apart, a life lived in pursuit of God's ideals for us and for our world. And as we live in our lives of holiness, we'll discover their lives of order and not lives of chaos. And so the passage before us this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 15, it's a series of contrasts where the ideal is contrasted with the real or reality. It's contrast between what is and what should be. 
It's a contrast between who we are and who we should be. And so we come to this passage, this chapter this morning, looking for that which will bring true fulfillment, looking for that which will bring true and lasting change to our lives and to our culture. So having said that, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew rack in front of you. And when you found Deuteronomy chapter 15, I'm going to ask you to stand. Because we love the Lord, we honor the Lord for speaking his truth and preserving his truth for us. So this is the word of the Lord from Deuteronomy chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment for his, from his fellow Israelite or brother, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your brother owes you. However, there should be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you will fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he's promised. And you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near so that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. If a fellow Hebrew... A man or a woman is sold to you, and he serves you six years. In the seventh year, you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I I do not want you to leave because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your maidservant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free because his service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Set apart for the Lord your God every firstborn male of your herds and flocks. Do not put the firstborn of your oxen to work and do not shear the firstborn of your sheep. Each year you and your family are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose. If an animal has a defect, is lame or blind, or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You're to eat it in your own towns. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it. 
as if it were gazelle or deer. But you must not eat the blood, pour it out on the ground like water. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that once again you'll be faithful to your promise to bless the reading and the hearing of your word. Uh, Father, we ask that your spirit, as always, would be the teacher here, revealing your truth to your people, giving us both the will and the strength to live our lives in accordance with your truth, so that we may be the holy people that you call us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, before we start, I have some good news and bad news. Which do you want first? Okay. The bad news is that this sermon is a little bit longer than usual. But the good news is, and some of you aren't going to believe this, we are going to cover an entire chapter in one week. After 20 months in the book of Deuteronomy and only being in chapter 15, the whole chapter this morning. All right? So guys, if you need to take off your coats, whatever you need to do, let's get at this passage. As we begin, it's not for the sake of redundancy, but for the sake of clarity that I want to go over once again with us our relationship as believers to the law in the Old Testament, particularly as we make our way through this portion of Deuteronomy, which contains the law. We generally can... uh, categorize the law of God in three ways. First, we talk about the ceremonial law. And those were the laws that governed the worship of the people of Israel. Those were the laws that governed the sacrificial system. Well, those ceremonial laws have now been set aside because Christ has fulfilled all of them. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that Christ has made for all time the single sacrifice for sin. And that by his single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So no more ceremonial law. The second category we refer to as the civil law. And those were laws that God gave his people to order their society as they sought to live together in community, particularly when they were a theocracy, when they had no king, but when God himself was their only ruler. For God's people, you and me, the kingdom is no longer a political one. It's not a civil entity in this world. When Jesus stood before Pilate on the night that he was arrested, he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And so those civil laws don't necessarily apply to us, though God calls us in Romans 13 to submit our lives to the authority that he has ordained over us. Thirdly, we talk about the the moral law. And the moral law is most succinctly set forth in the Ten Commandments. Now that law is no longer used to, to gain our salvation, but it's certainly law by which we should live our lives, right? Don't lie, don't cheat, don't kill, you know, don't, don't do those things. But because all of the law together, all of it, all three, civil, ceremony, and moral, all of it is reflective of the mind of God, what he thinks about life in different times and different places. And so when we come to all of the law, we look for what we call the general equity. You got that? General equity. And that simply means that we look at the law and we look for the principles that we can find there. You know, what might God's reason have been for giving these laws 
to these people? What behavior does he want to elicit from them? What attitudes does he want them to have based on his law? And here's an example. The temple doesn't exist anymore. It's been destroyed. But the laws that govern the temple worship, particularly the laws about the Holy of Holies, God's dwelling place, and who could go there, and when they could go there, and how often they could go there, all of those laws were meant to communicate to God's people that they were approaching a holy God. Well, God remains in this very moment, right now, today, and forever. He will always be a holy God. And so the general equity of that ceremonial law tells us that you and I must approach our very approachable God with reverence and with awe and not casually or flippantly or thoughtlessly. Also, when we come to the Old Testament law, we have to look for how it points us to and shows us our need for Christ. Now, I want to read to you from Galatians chapter 3. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. And the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, We no longer need the law as our guardian. So the beauty of this chapter before us, chapter 15, is it so legibly spells out for us our need for Christ. Because the chapter sets God's ideal alongside of reality. And this chapter exposes how much you and I need Christ to help us to reach God's ideal. So let's look at the first section, sections one through 11. If you'll look in verse four, verse four clearly states what God's ideal is. And God's ideal is this. There should be no poor among you. Now, when we talk about poverty in uh, the ancient Middle East and with God's people, poverty did not come upon them because they maxed out their credit cards. That's not why they were in poverty. It was not usually the result of living beyond their means. They wanted what they wanted when they wanted it, so they just went into debt to get it. Their poverty wasn't usually the result of irresponsible living, but poverty could come on people very quickly. The loss of a husband or father, vital for sustaining the family, could put the family in a precarious situation into poverty before long. The loss of a mother, that vital support system for the family. Poverty could come upon you from from sickness. Poverty could come upon you from someone stealing from you and what you have. 
people who found themselves in this position of poverty, then they, they had to go to someone for a loan to help them out of their condition of poverty. So we come to verses one and two here and God tells his people that every seven years they are to cancel these debts. The ESV captures the Hebrew a little better. It says at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has sent lent to his neighbor. So the idea here is of release. It's of, of letting go more than cancellation. A debate exists among Hebrew scholars and theologians as to whether this release was permanent, like it's all forgiven, or whether this release was just a deferment. Because God had said that every seven years, the land has to take a rest. You can't sow it, you can't plant. No, even the land gets a rest. So if you're a person in debt and you say, oh, for a whole year, you can't work to pay off your debt, what are you going to do? So God calls for this release. No, no, the lender says, relax, take a deep breath. Nothing is required for you. No payments are required of you during this year. But in either scenario, whether it's total cancellation or deferment, what God calls his people to is compassionate generosity. Okay, that's the... That's the general equity here of this law for for generosity. Look in verses seven and eight. Hard-hearted and tight-fisted are juxtaposed to open-handedness and free lending. Look in verse 10. A grudging heart is placed beside generosity. So we get the picture. Open-handed, free-giving, tender-hearted, generosity. That's God's ideal. And that's what God calls for from his people. Now we can move to the next section, sections 12, verses 12 through 18. And we see that very same call to generosity extended not only to the poor, but also to the person who is in slavery. Not the horrific chattel slavery as we knew it here in the South. A different kind of slavery. If one of the scenarios I mentioned earlier had fallen upon you, death of a spouse, whatever, and you, you found yourself in poverty, you find, found yourself having to borrow money, then you found yourself unable to pay your debt, then what did you have to do? You had to sell yourself in slavery to that person so you could work off the debt that you owed to them. Well, God says six years maximum, that's the term of slavery. In the seventh year, God proclaims here, the slave must be released. Look in verse 12, you must let him go free. And the release of that slave is accompanied by generosity. The the one who held them in slavery is not to turn them out the way they found them, poor and destitute. That would only be to perpetuate their poverty and they would have to sell themselves into slavery again. So what does God say? No, be generous. Do not send them away empty-handed, he says in verse 13. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. So here again, we see God's ideal. Slaves set free, former slaves provided for liberally. Then we move to the next section, verses 19 through 23, and we see that generosity is called for once again. This time, the generosity is toward God. The first and the best belong to God. 
You're not to first use them for yourself. No, you don't use that firstborn ox to plow your own field and then give it to God. You don't shear that sheep first so you can have the wool for yourself and then give that sheep to God. No, the first and the best belong completely to God. So look, what's required? What's God's ideal? Lending and releasing, letting go of what is owed and letting go of the person who owns it. Generosity in releasing slaves, generosity in providing for them, generosity in giving the first and the best to God. That's how, that's God's ideal. And this is how a a well-ordered life works. And it's through generosity that the world will be blessed and not by our personal happiness. And in putting this ideal before us, God doesn't, doesn't ask anything of any one of us in this room. He doesn't ask of us anything that he has not already done for us. You know, the worst kind of parent to try to obey or the worst kind of teacher or the worst kind of boss or supervisor is the one who says to us, now don't do as I do, but do as I say do. <laughs> what? Who wants to, to listen to a person like that? But God has already done for us what he asks of us. He's compassionate, he's merciful, he's full of grace, and he has already been generous to poor people, to people who had nothing. Look again in verse 4. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. Verse 7 says again that the land that they are going to is the land that is given to them by God. And so make no mistake about it. God's people... As they stand here on the plains of Moab, listening to Moses, God has no problem reminding them through Moses that all that they are, i.e., freed slaves, and all that they are going to have, i.e., the promised land, all of it is God's good gift to them. It's their inheritance. And Moses could have just as easily stood up in front of these people and said, people of God, what would you have today in this moment if God had not given it to you? People of God, who would you be at this moment if God had not acted on your behalf? And I can ask the same question, can't I? Of each of us this morning, people of God, what would you have if God had not given it to you? Not least of which is the life you have in your body right now and the breath that you have in your lungs right now. Not least of which are the gifts that he has given you to pursue life. And whatever it is that you have accomplished or whatever it is you have acquired for yourself, it is the good gift of God. God has been generous to poor people. He has achieved his ideal. God's also achieved his own ideal in setting slaves free. Look in verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That's why I give you this command today. And upon their release from slavery in Egypt, what did they experience? Exodus 12 tells us the Israelites did as Moses commanded. And they asked the Egyptians, their captors, for silver and gold and articles of clothing. And the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people so that, God's, so that they gave God's people what they asked for and God's people plundered Egypt. Can you imagine? It's like, give me your gold, give me your silver. Sure, here, have it. But it was the work of God on behalf of his people, setting his people free, lavishing gifts upon them. Once again, God has met his ideal. And then we come to giving the first and the best. 
And once again, God has met his own ideal. What else could we say this morning but this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his first and his best, God gave. This is God's ideal. But God's also a realist. And God knows the human heart. And God knows what kind of society, what kind of culture human hearts build. God's ideal is that there be no poor among you. But now look in verse 11. Because this tells us the reality. There will always be poor people in the land. Why is this so? You know why it's so. Because our hearts naturally go toward tight-fistedness. And so God commands open-handedness of us. Because our hearts naturally tend toward stinginess. And so God has to command generosity. Because the natural tendency of our hearts is not toward tenderness and compassion. So God has to command His people to not be hard-hearted. See, you and I cannot reach God's ideal on our own. And that's why we're back to Galatians 3. The law here in chapter 15 leads every one of us to Christ. And we have to fall before Him. And we have to say, Lord Jesus, make us who we are not, but who we should be. We fall before Him and and we thank Him for being for us what we cannot be for ourselves and doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Do you believe that? Only Jesus, only Jesus can cancel the debt that we owe. Only Jesus can release us from it. And that's what he does. And that's why we sing, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, I'm constrained to be. Every day, you and I are in debt to God's grace. Every day, we must have Jesus to prevent us from being minimalistic from hovering, slump-shouldered over our counting books and going line by line by line to see what is the absolute minimum we can give and get away with it and still be acceptable to God. We need Jesus to make us people of compassionate generosity. God's ideal is that slaves go free, but look in verse 18. According to that, there are slave owners who will consider it a hardship if they let their slaves go free. And so they will attempt to keep the slave for themselves. And they do that because they're not free. The slave owner can't set others free because he's bound. He's bound to the need to be served instead of serving. He's bound by the need to protect himself. He's bound by the need for his own comfort and security. He's bound by the need to have more and more and have someone to help him get it. And we're often bound by those same things. And often we bind others to serve us instead of releasing them, freeing them to be the people that Christ has called them to be and to serve others. 
And so when we come to God's ideal for freedom and release, once again, we know that we need Jesus. Now, here's the good news. Are you guys okay? Woo, woo. I think we're halfway through. Maybe a little more. Tell me you love me. Here's the good news. It's in Luke chapter 4. Luke's recording here Jesus' first sermon ever. It says, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year, this year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. So he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, our freedom, yours and mine, it's in Christ. The one who said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so you and I are to live in the freedom that that Christ has provided for us. We're to live in the freedom of that identity that we've talked about. For the last couple of weeks, we are children of the living God. We're free. You're free. Free from your past. Free from carrying that that burden of sin around with you everywhere. Free from that burden of guilt. You're free from the burden of trying to fulfill everyone else's expectations for you. You're free from anxiety. You're free from worry. Free, free. That's the word. We've been released, set free by Jesus. And because you are free... And I'm free. We've, we, we've got to release others to be free as well. Don't bind other people up to serve you. Don't bind them up to, to coddle you. Don't bind them up to make you happy. Don't bind them up to, to, to build up your fragile ego. Don't bind them up to keep you calm, to build up your self-esteem. Release them. Release them. You don't need other people for that, okay? You do not, okay, I, I do not need other people for that. We have Jesus, right? He set us free from all those fears, whatever they are that compel us to keep other people in slavery to us. Lastly, well, at least for this part, God's ideal is to give our first and our best to him. But what's the reality? The tendency of the human heart is to keep the first and the best for ourselves. And so God actually has to command his people, if you can imagine, not to bring defective animals or lame or blind or flawed animals. Don't bring those to me to sacrifice. He actually has to tell his people to do that. What in the world lies behind our need to keep the first and the best for ourselves and give to God the leftovers or what we don't want or what we've already used, like he's some kind of cosmic goodwill. Here, you can have it, Lord. What do we fear losing? 
Jesus famously told that wealthy man who came to him, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. But then Peter, I love Peter. Peter pipes up, we, Jesus, we have. We, we, we just we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus responded, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come, eternal life. (laughs) We get it all. And so we don't have to fear giving our first and our best. We don't even have to fear giving our all to Jesus. Our first and our best, not only of our money, but our time and our talents, our strength. God first, you get the best part of me. You get my energy. You get my strength first. Everybody else will have to come later. So as we look at this passage as a whole, surely our hearts tell us. And the Spirit of God tells us that God is calling us here not to parse the letter of the law, to see how little we can get away with. Surely God is calling us to to generosity. And surely our hearts and our spirits are calling us to work up the nerve. I can do it. I can do it. To trust God and just in faith plunge in and to believe that God is as good as he promises to be. If I act like a funnel of God's blessing, if you act as a funnel of God's blessing, if we give away what we have, we will not be the worse off for it. Look at his promises. Verse 6. If you obey, the Lord your God will bless you. Look in verse 10. Give generously. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Verse 18. When people have generously and lavishly set their slaves free, the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. And so you and I this morning, we can be who God has called us to be, generous people. And we can do what God has called us to do, to give lavishly, and we can trust God with the results. Can't we? We can. God will provide what we need. And once again, our generosity is not limited to our money. Because Some of you young people are pulling your pockets out like this, and there's nothing in them. Not much in mine, but you know how it goes... The generosity is also with our lives. Open-handedness with our lives. Being generous with other people, with our time, with our skills, helping those in need, being lavish with them and not stingy. And here's why. You really want to know why we have to be generous people? Listen, we have got a world to change. We do. We have a world to change. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, 
God making his appeal through us. You and I, we are reconcilers. Because of sin, you see, people have divorced themselves. They've divorced themselves from God, their creator. But because of Jesus, people can be reconciled to God. Is that good news? They can have a restored relationship with him. We are called, you and I, are called to announce that message, the message of reconciliation. What a calling we have. Personal happiness? I don't know. (laughs) Reconciliation? Amen. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things on earth or things in heaven. Philippians 2 is all-inclusive when it tells us that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I'm going to confess right now passages like that. Colossians 1 and Philippians 2, they are too daring for me. They are too big for me. Because the implications are immense about what an eternity looks like when all things are reconciled and when every knee and every tongue bows and confesses the Lordship of Christ. Can you imagine? But the good news is that God has opened our hearts and He's opened our eyes to know and to see the truth. Again, Ephesians 1 tells us that God has made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so God has given us the privilege of knowing what is to be, of doing now what someday all will do. We are the vanguard. We are the first. And so it will take generosity in our lives, generosity in giving all of who we are. It will require us not only singing and saying, but also living. Lord, I surrender all. That's what we'll have to do if we will have a significant part to play in this ministry of reconciliation. It's going to require that we lay aside self-indulgence and self-satisfaction. And it will definitely mean, I believe, that the goal of our lives cannot be the pursuit of personal happiness. But that's okay, because you and I have something much better to live for, much better to live for than our personal happiness, which we may or may not find. We live for holiness. We live lives not marked by chaos, but by order, as we seek through the power of the Holy Spirit to reach that ideal that God has set before us. And I'll tell you this, if you and I will go out into this city, if we will live generously and if we will live lavishly, I am convinced that reconciliation will come. You believe that might happen? If we're lavish in our living, generous in our giving of our lives, reconciliation will come. And those who have been apart from God, they're going to be united back to God through Christ. As you and I are united to him through Christ. We can generously, generously surrender our lives to no greater good than that.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for time together in your word. Lord, I know the human heart because I have one myself and we've been here long this morning. So I pray that you would not allow any annoyance with that to overshadow the truth to which you call us this morning. And Lord, what is true from your word, it's been spoken. All of your word is true. The words that have been spoken about your word, where they are true, Lord, I pray that you would drive them deeply into our hearts. We know beyond question, Lord, that you have called us to be people of compassion. Lord, your word tells us that you looked on our lowly estate. You looked, you saw how poor and pitiful we are. And you decided to do something about it. You worked on our behalf to alleviate our suffering, to alleviate our poverty. Lord, you call us to do the same thing, to look at those around us with eyes of compassion, to be generous where generosity is called for. I pray that you would make us willing to give all of our lives to you. The first and the best. Lord, may that be what we offer to you. Always give us hearts, Lord, willing to surrender all for you and for the sake of the gospel and for the ministry of reconciliation. For we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.